Hello, hockey fans. This is Mark Willand. Before we begin the show, just a reminder that the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast supports the Warrior for Life Fund charity. If you follow social media, you saw our recent alumni weekend series between the Boston Bruins and New York Ranger legends to benefit the Warrior for Life Fund and the Navy SEALs Foundation. Through the game of hockey, the Warrior for Life Fund provides programs and infrastructure that helps military families cope with the unique challenges of combat, extended deployments, and disabilities. The Warrior for Life Fund will memorialize the history and heritage of military service and honor those who have unselfishly given the ultimate sacrifice. We are proud to be associated with these real-life heroes. To learn more, please visit warriorforlifefund.org. Thank you. Welcome to the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast, the voice of hockey legends. This is the classic hockey show for classic hockey fans. We celebrate the history of the game with stories told by the select few who actually lived it. Get ready for an all-access pass to the heart of the hockey universe. Episode 54 of the Pro Hockey Alumni Podcast features part one of our two-part discussion with Gary Suitcase Smith, one of the NHL's premier goaltenders and most fascinating characters of the 1960s and 70s. In this episode, Gary gives us amazing and humorous insights into his first two big league stops in Oakland and Toronto as well as his junior career with the Toronto Marlboros. Also known as Axe for his stick-wielding ways, Gary was the co-winner of the Vesna Trophy in 71-72 with Chicago and NHL All-Star in 1975 with Vancouver and an Avco Cup champion with the Winnipeg Jets in 1979. In addition to his on-ice accomplishments, Gary is remembered as a fun-loving and colorful netminder who is popular with teammates and fans alike. If you love classic hockey, you'll love this discussion with Gary Smith. Remember, home base for the show is ProHockeyAlumni.org, and you can also reach us anywhere on social media at ProHockeyAlumni. Your comments, ratings, and reviews on iTunes are extremely valuable in increasing the visibility of the show. I read all your comments, and they are greatly appreciated. Now, let's talk classic hockey with Gary Smith. We're back on the show with a Memorial Cup Championship goaltender, an AVCO Cup champion, and an NHL All-Star, Gary Smith. You can call him Suitcase, you call him Axe, but in either case, one of the most entertaining and durable hockey goaltenders of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Gary, thanks so much for being with us today. Pleasure, Mark. Nice to talk with you. Well, we're looking forward to it. And what some people, our fans, may not know is that you come from a prominent 
hockey family. Uh, your father, Des Smith, of course, played in the National Hockey League, was a part of a Boston Bruins Stanley Cup championship team in the 40s with Milt Schmidt, among others. Your brother, Brian, of course, played for Minnesota and L.A. in the NHL and for the Houston Arrows in the World Hockey Association. So what's it like for a young man growing up in Ontario with your dad playing in the National Hockey League? Well, uh, when I grew up, uh, my dad played in the National Hockey League before I was born. Um, I was born in 44, which is a long time ago, but uh, they won the Stanley Cup in 39-40, I think it was, for Boston. Mm-hmm. And uh, he... Uh, he then the war came, and um, everybody went to the to the war. And um, when the war was over, he came back, and he was a linesman in the American Hockey League. So, I, when I was growing up, he was a linesman um, and, and a referee also uh, in the American Hockey League. And uh, I can remember uh, going down to Syracuse, which is about a hundred miles from Ottawa, where I grew up, uh, to watch my dad ref and see him during the year because. Uh, I didn't seem that much at home in those days. I was very young, mm-hmm. but I do remember a few things about it. And uh, w- later on, when um, uh, you know, when I was growing up, uh, eight, nine, ten years old, my dad uh, was involved with the Ottawa Old Pros, and uh, they played. Uh, they were old timers hockey team. They played a lot of uh, you know Montreal Old Pros and um, uh, teams like that. I can remember one time. Um, I was a big hockey fan, of course, when you're a kid, like every everybody in the in Canada and mm-hmm. northern United States. And I can remember one time uh, my dad was sleeping in the uh, in the morning, uh, and uh, the phone rang, and I answered the phone, and uh, the guy said, "Is Des there?" And I said, "Who's calling, please?" Because I knew not to wake my, up my dad unless it was an important call. Mm-hmm. And he said, "Toe Blake, who is the coach of the Montreal Canadiens," and. Um, so uh, I said, wow, Toe Blake. And uh, so I ran upstairs and I talked to my dad. I said, Toe Blake's on the phone, Dad. And uh, so he said, okay. And he got up and uh, he started talking to him. So he was talking, it was when Rocket Richard was suspended. Um, he hit a, uh, a uh, referee or a linesman at one point and they suspended him near the end of the year. Mm-hmm. And Montreal Old Pros were playing against Ottawa Old Pros. And my dad had called Toe and asked him if he could ask the Rocket if uh, he would come up for the old-timers game uh, in Ottawa. It was played at the old Ottawa Auditorium, which held about 7,000 people, and they had sold about 100 tickets the week before. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he was calling my dad back to tell him that the Rocket said he could play. He could come up and play, and this was when the Rocket was at his, his uh, highest. You know, he was nice. like leading scorer in the team and most popular player in the world. And he was coming up to Ottawa, so my dad uh, got dressed and came downstairs. He said, come on with me. And uh, we went down to the auditorium, and, well, he called some friends first, and we had to go pick up some money. And uh, so he had a whole bunch of money, about 2,500 bucks or something. And we went to the Ottawa auditorium, and the ticket manager there was kind of a rival of my dad's. And uh, they didn't get along very well, but he went up to the ticket manager and he said, give me $2,500 worth of tickets for the old-timers game. And the guy was really happy to give them to him. And, uh, you know, he's selling tickets for the game. And then after my dad got all the tickets he could possibly get, he said, the rocket is coming to rub it into the, to the, the ticket manager. <laughs> And uh, so I can remember going to the game, and uh, 
course, the rocket came. The place was sold out, the 7,000 tickets, which my dad scalped most of them, I guess, and he probably made several thousand on the deal. And um, I remember meeting the rocket, um, and uh, he was just great to me. And uh, uh, I can, then I played old-timers hockey with the rocket. The rocket was a referee. I toured with the Montreal Old Pros all around the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, him and I used to just sit in the front seats and talk about the old days. And uh, so, you know, I do go back a long time. There was guys uh, coming to my house from the Hall of Fame, uh, Bill Cowley, who played for Boston, um, and uh, Cy Denany, um, Bill Dernan, that played Montreal. I played ball hockey out on the street for, with Bill Dernan. He was wow. teaching me how to change my hands because I don't know if people know that he used to catch with both hands. He, he had uh, like trappers on both his hands, and when a guy would come down the left wing, he would uh, put the he would put the stick in his left hand, and we come down the right wing, vice versa. Hmm. So uh, he taught me to do that. But uh, when I got to play pro, then uh, the gloves were different, and I wasn't able to do it. But uh, I thought about trying it at one point, but uh, you know the coaches wouldn't go for that. I used to do it in practice, but right. most of my coaches I didn't really get along with anyway. So you had to do what they said. But right. yes, yeah, so I I uh, I. Uh, Come from and my brother was a real good hockey player. He, he came up in the junior Canadians. Uh, he was in the Montreal system. I went to the Toronto system, and uh, he was a great prospect for uh, for the Canadians. He played for the whole Ottawa Canadians in juniors, the Brockville Canadians. They were in Brockville for a year. They had like the best junior team in Canada. Guys like Bobby Russo and Jacques Laperriere and. Um, uh, Oh, Billy Carter was a great player at the time. Norby Dennis, but uh, anyway, Brian turned pro with the Hull Ottawa Canadians, the uh, which was the top uh, farm team from Montreal, and um, he had a great year his first year, his rookie year. He scored about thirty goals, and Montreal protected him. Uh, those were in the days of only six teams. So they protected him so he couldn't go to another team. He wasn't available for the draft. But prior to that, uh, he was in the playoffs. And I was at the game on a good Friday. Uh, They were playing Kingston in the playoffs. And uh, I was home from uh, school at St. Mike's with my dad watching the game at Hull Arena. And uh, he was hit. Um, And it was uh, days of no helmets. And... uh, the guy that hit him on Montreal, on, on Kingston was a guy named Terry Gray, and who played a little bit in the NHL for right. Detroit and I think Los Angeles. Yes. And um, anyway, he he um, my brother went to the I hit him in the head and he went to the ice. He hit his head on the boards and the ice, and he was knocked out cold. And. Um, my dad, I remember my dad ran down and jumped on the ice with galoshes on and ran after Terry Gray uh, to try and catch Terry Gray for suckering my brother. Right. And uh, the whole arena was laughing and cowbells were ringing. And uh, anyway, uh, Sam Pollock, was, who is the legendary general manager of Montreal Canadiens, owned the team. And... Um, he was coaching for the 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 Hull Ottawa Canadians in the Central Hockey League, and um, 
So they weren't they weren't doing very well. Meanwhile, they brought my brother. They carried my brother off, and they put him in a cloak room behind the dressing room, where where you would go and you'd uh, change your clothes and your galoshes because there was a lot of snow out and stuff. Mm-hmm. And they just sat him there. And so we were in there with my brother. We were waiting for a doctor or something to come in. And Sam Pollock came in the room and started screaming at the team uh, about they were losing and this and that. My dad went out to Sam Pollock, and he picked them up and and uh, threw them against the wall. And he said, my son's dying in there. You get a, an ambulance here immediately. Wow. So I can remember Sam Pollock, who was like, supposed to be the biggest guy in hockey, said, oh, I'm sorry, Des. And they went out and they got in the ambulance. We went to the ambulance with my brother to the hospital. He almost died. He had a fractured skull. And the next year when he came back after being protected by Montreal Canadiens, so nobody else could, could get him, he wasn't the same player. And he never was the same player after that. He was meant to be a real good one. Yeah, that's... And that's uh, a, year, a year later... Sam Pollock traded my brother Brian to to uh, Springfield Indians and Eddie Shore. So anybody that knows hockey, you know that that was the last place that you wanted to go. And so my brother didn't go there, and he went over and played a few years in Europe, in Bern and in Switzerland, and um, had a great time. And then he wanted to play in the NHL, so he came back, and uh, he had to go and play in Springfield. So then, in Springfield, uh, they they forced uh, Eddie Shore out of the game when expansion came to 12 teams, and uh, then he was picked up with Los Angeles, and he played as a first year for the Los Angeles Kings. But he was never the same after that as a hockey player. He was meant to be a real good hockey player. Yeah, Just want to tell you that about my brother, and a little story about my brother, and a little story about my dad. Now that's an incredible story, but it had to be. For you as a brother, uh, it had to be traumatic to watch all that unfold. Uh, yes, and, and, but I was proud of my dad running around the ice after the guy. And uh, I was proud of what he did with Sam Pollock, who was uh, Mr. Hockey at the time. And uh, we say, he saved my brother's life, otherwise he would have died. And um, so he went on. But he, I just wanted to let everyone know that he, he, he was meant to be a real good hockey player. He scored about 10 goals in the NHL, about five of them on me. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, basically, uh, I was happy every, every time he scored on me. That's understandable. Never let him score. I guess he knew, <laughs> knew where to shoot on me. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Gary, you end up working your career through, through, as a young man through St. Michael's and end up with the Toronto Marlboros. It had to be a a big deal for you. Again, an Ottawa kid playing for the celebrated Toronto Marlboros team, and you've got a lot of characters, real good players, but also some very interesting characters, Mike Shakey Walton, uh, Peter Stamkowski, Jim McKenney. Talk a little bit about the the championship season Memorial Cup with the Toronto Marlboros. Well, okay, but first I have to uh, uh, just talk about my, my career. There was a guy up the, the street that uh, was a scout for Toronto. His name was Brian Lynch. He used to play for the Ottawa Rough Riders, and every day he would see me walking up the street in my pads up past his house to and going to a rink in Ottawa, an outdoor rink with my goalie pads on. So he was watching me from a very early age. So the first team I uh, ever played for was a team in Ottawa called the Woodruff Cardinals. And um, he uh, used to come and watch us play, and so he told Toronto about me. So 
we took our team up to play a game on a Saturday morning that the Leafs were playing that night, so we drove up from Ottawa. And um, after that, we played the Marlboros uh, midget team. I know what a minute. Yeah, it was I guess midget, but we were we were like bantams, and they beat us like seventeen to nothing or something like that. But after the game, they took me over to St. Mike's, and I didn't know what was going on. But and they showed me the school. I was in grade nine um, at home, and uh, they uh, said, "Would you like to come here next year to this school?" And uh, I, I said, "Of course, you know, get get away from home when I'm like fourteen years old." And uh, come to a place like that. So I went to St. Mike's the next year, and I flunked at I flunked grade nine at uh, St. Pat's in Ottawa that year because I was just interested in playing hockey. But I told them the the scouts came to see me later on during the year. Uh, Punch M. Lack and Bob Davidson, and uh, they asked me how I was doing at school. I said I was doing great. <laughs> I said I was on the honor roll. So anyway, next year I go to St. Mike's and they put me in the brain class. And uh, so, and then I was in grade ten, and I should have been in grade nine, and I ended up passing grade ten because, uh, you know, I got such uh, good schooling at St. Mike's. But so I played at St. Mike's at fourteen. I go there, and there's Davy Keon, Frank Mahovlich, uh, Dick Duff, uh, Les Duff, his brother, and uh, all all kinds of great guys who went on to the Hall of Fame, basically. And uh, so you go there, and they treat you like you're supposed to be there. You're 14, they're 20. And uh, wow. also, also in goal at, at St. Mike's was Cesar Maniago. He was on Junior A. Jerry Chivers was on Junior B. And I played in the midgets. And the first glove, the first goalie glove that I ever got, Cesar Maniago gave me a baseball glove, a catching glove. And uh, I had it until I, you know, I got a better glove a couple of years later. But and Jerry Cheevers, just the nicest guys you could ever meet, and they just treated you like they were your, your equal. And so that's where I came up. Then uh, we had great championship teams in St. Mike's, uh, Junior B, then Junior A, and uh, but uh, what happened while I was there? Um, Stafford Smythe, who owned the uh, Toronto Maple Leafs, and he was he, they owned St. Mike's basically, and the Marlies, uh, pulled away from the W from the Ontario Hockey Association and formed their own league. And uh, we had six teams in the league. There was St. Mike's Marlies, Brampton, Whitby, uh, Unionville, and. Uh, somebody else, Oshawa. No, yeah, Oshawa, I guess. And um, so, uh, anyway, we we played there first year in St. Mike's, and then we played against Marley's in the playoffs. We beat them out. Then we won our league, and uh, we played against Niagara Falls, in, uh, who were the uh, Ontario Hockey Association champions in the playoffs. And uh, they beat us. Uh, Bernie Perrant, Derek Sanderson, guys like that were, were playing. Uh, Gary Dornhofer were playing Terry Crisp for Niagara Falls. And they went out and they beat Edmonton in the Morrow Cup. Right. So the next year, um, Stafford Smythe, after two years, Stafford Smythe uh, went back into the um, Ontario Hockey League with the Marlies. But in the meantime, at St. Mike's, we had moved to Neil McNeil because the guys weren't going to school as much as they should, and they weren't doing as well as they should. So St. Mike's stopped their 
junior hockey program. So they took the best players from St. Mike's and the best players from Marlboro's to go into the Ontario Hockey League as the Marlies. So obviously we had a powerhouse. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had um, Stemkowski, Walton, uh, as you mentioned, Jimmy McKenney, and uh, we had over 10 players that ended up playing over 10 years in the National Hockey League, and uh, we just ran away with the league. We were voted the uh, best amateur team in Ontario in the 19th century. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of amateur teams in different sports in Ontario, and Toronto Marlboros were voted the number one amateur sport, mm-hmm. or uh, excuse me, amateur team in Ontario during the 1900s, so, which is quite an honor. Absolutely. Jim Gregory was our general manager. Uh, the other guys on the team, Nick Harbrook, uh, Barry Watson, Ray DuPont, uh, Rod Sealing, uh, Gary Deneen, Mike Corbett, guys that went on to play good National Hockey League careers. Absolutely. When your junior career ends, you... Uh, obviously now come into the Toronto Maple Leaf system in a system with the Leafs that's loaded with top-rated goaltenders, Terry Sawchuk, Johnny Bauer, you know, Bruce Gamble's there, Al Smith is there. What's it like now for a young kid going to the Marlboros, uh, going to the Maple Leafs training camp with that type of goaltending competition and the likes of guys you just mentioned, Dave Keon, Frank Mahovlich, George Armstrong, Tim Horton, it had to be an incredible experience. Yes, uh, Jerry Cheevers was also there <laughs> at the time. So uh, the, the goalies in the Leafs system at that time uh, that I can remember, this was uh, 65, uh, around 1965. I think we won the Memorial Cup in 63, 64. So 65 um, or 64, 65. But uh, they, they had, uh, in Toronto, they had uh, Johnny Bauer and Terry Sawchuk. Hall of Famers. In Rochester, they had Jerry Cheevers, Hall of Famer. Don Simmons in Tulsa, and a guy named Al Miller in uh, Victoria. So uh, basically, they signed me the same as they signed everybody for the same amount of money uh, coming out of junior. It was uh, 4000 to sign, uh, $5,000 for the first-year pro, and 5500 the second-year pro. That's what everybody made, no matter if you're Davey Keon or or Frank Mahovlich, or anybody, everybody made that. And uh, so I signed with them, and I go there in training camp, and I got no chance of of playing anywhere, really. So what they did is they sent me to Rochester and uh, with Cheevers, and I was in Rochester most of the year. But when anyone would get hurt in Toronto, Victoria, B.C., or Tulsa, then they would send me out there. So I ended up playing a few games for each of those teams, and um, uh, the rest of the time I was in Rochester. I only got to play in one game in Rochester the whole year. Cheevers was so great, and uh, it was the last game of the year when he got hurt with five minutes to go in the game, and um, I had to go and dress up. I wasn't sitting on the bench like he did, the goalie just be in the stand so they had to wait they only had five games left to play in the season until I went in and put my stuff on and came out and and, uh, and played the last five games fortunately I don't think they scored on me but um, I did play a game a couple of games with the Leafs that year when Bauer and Sawchuk uh, 
uh, one of them got hurt. And I was with Toronto most of the year, and they won the Stanley Cup that year. Like, I, it was either it was Rochester or Toronto or Victoria or Tulsa, but a lot of the time in Rochester, a lot of the time in Toronto, because Bauer and Sachuk were so old that one of them was hurt most of the time. <laughs> right. And, uh, but uh, so I did get to play a couple of games, which was quite a good experience. And um, uh, my first game was against the Rangers in Toronto. We lost two to one. Uh, I can remember uh, the winning goal went off uh, uh, Donnie Marshall's skate. Uh, he didn't mean to kick it in. It was a good goal, but it just went off his skate. But I played pretty well. Then the next game I played from uh, played in Toronto against Montreal, which is kind of famous game in. Uh, uh, for me, anyway, um, I was sitting on the bench this time. They they dressed me for some reason, and uh, mm-hmm. was probably one of the first goalies ever to sit on a bench um, because uh, I guess they figured that I know Sachuk was playing, and it was a little doubtful that he was going to make it through the game. So um, there was a fight fight right in front of our bench, uh, John Ferguson and Eddie Shack. So I wanted to be part of the team, and uh, you know, so I was. It was right in front of me, sitting on the bench. So I was yelling at Ferguson, and uh, so uh, in the first period, and uh, we were losing one nothing, I think. And uh, so anyway, Punch Emlack heard me yelling at him, and he came. He took the towel off my neck, my shoulders, sitting on the bench, and he said, uh, "You're going in the net. Get Ferguson." So I said to him, well, how can I get him? He's in the penalty box. He said, get him when he gets out. So I said, well, okay. So they put me in the net, and they scored a couple of goals on me. And it was getting near the end of the first period, and Ferguson was still in the penalty box. And uh, so I figured, I'm never going to play another game in the NHL. What should I do to uh, try and make people remember me? So I said, I'm going to go and try to myself. I'm going to go try and score or at least get an assist. So uh, somehow the the puck ended up in my glove, and uh, I took a couple of steps, and I was by everybody, and I dropped the puck, and I uh, only had one guy to beat, and it was J.C. Trombley, who never hit a guy in his life. So I went and I tried to put a move on him at, at the Canadians' blue line, and uh, he hit me, and I went spinning around, and I could see Ralph Backstrom <laughs> going the other way on my first spin, on a breakaway with only Marcel Prono roll back. And on that spin, I saw Punch Emlack pull his hat down over his head. And then on the second spin, I saw Marcel Prono roll make the greatest save I've ever seen in my life, stopping Backstrom. And as I scurried back to the, to the net, I fell down a couple of times. The whole Montreal forum was just laughing their pants off. And uh, uh, I got back in there and then... Uh, it turns out the whole arena would just buzz for the rest of the game. And they changed the rule the next day that a goaltender can't go by the blue line, and they sent me back down to the minors to Victoria. I was in the ne- there the next day. <laughs> well, anyway, I, it was pretty famous at the time, and so I, I tried it a lot. And I remember when I was in Victoria, um, uh, I played in a game, and I was making plays. I was going up and doing that. They were in the Western Hockey League. And I was just waiting till the forwards, I had the puck in my glove till the forwards got by me. I dropped the puck, and the guys would go, and I could make some pretty good passes. I remember a guy named Millie Marcetta got five goals uh, one game for Victoria, and the headlines in the paper the next day were, uh, Smith gets four assists, Marcetta five goals. <laughs> and uh, so uh, it 
became my trademark for a while, and I, I tried until the game got too fast, and I, and I got too old, and I couldn't do it anymore. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that about J.C. Trombley. Not a physical player, but uh, a very good one, and then he didn't want to be embarrassed by a goaltender, I, I guess, so even he... Uh, uh, I'm the only guy he ever hit. Yeah, but exactly. It wasn't, wasn't very hard to hit. <laughs> but uh, on, that, on the road trip uh, to, to Montreal that day, uh, I was replacing Johnny Bauer, and uh, we took a train. It was like, I guess we played the night before, and we took a train to uh, Montreal from Toronto. And you asked me about Tim Horton, and uh, in those days, uh, we had one railroad car to ourselves, and uh, uh, they had upper and lower bunks, and uh, guys would have a few beers at the end of it, and at one end, and the management would be on the other end. And the goaltenders, because they were goalies, got uh, the bottom bursts. And uh, so... Uh, we had a couple of beers after the game, and uh, then we were all we all went to bed about one o'clock. We all left at the same time to go to bed. And um, meanwhile, the train is traveling from Toronto to Montreal. And uh, so Tim Horton uh, was supposed to be above uh, Johnny Bauer, and I was replacing Bauer. And so I got there and with Tim, and uh, I said I'll go up on top because you know I'm a rookie, and he, this is Tim Horton. And he says, "No way." He says, "You're a goalie, and uh, and uh, this is where you this is where you, you you're going to sleep." Wow. And so Tim Tim Horton crawled over me and crawled up to the top bunk after uh, having played a really tough game, you know. And uh, he was tough as nails. And I imagine his body was pretty sore, and it wasn't that easy for him to get up to the top bunk. And here I was sleeping in the bottom bunk. I couldn't sleep all night, but. Uh, Anyway, that's the way the guys were in those days. They were one for another, and uh, it was a big family to them. And playing with Toronto Maple Leafs, Frank Mahovlich, guys like that, just just treated me like I belonged to be on the team. Yet I was like a rookie. I hadn't even played any games pro hardly, you know. Mm -hmm. In that time period when you're earning that nickname suitcase because of the four minor league teams and your fill-in role, as you mentioned, you play a lot with Rochester. And with a teammate defenseman, Don Cherry, what are your recollections of Don Grapes Cherry? Well, first of all, just a great guy. Um, I played with him that the first year. My second year pro, I played with him again, and that year I played a lot. Um, I played with Bobby Perrow as the other goalie, and uh, I played like 25 or 30 games. And with Cherry, he was a great defenseman. He was tough as nails. Uh, he wasn't a very good skater. Um, and he wasn't a great playmaker, but he's a great defensive uh, player. I can remember that uh, in those days, most of the uh, teams traveled by bus. Uh, we were fortunate enough to travel by plane, but the plane was god-awful. It was a DC-3 plane that was used during the war, and uh, it was already 25 years old, and we had some flights that were... Uh, just uh, knuckle busting, and uh, <laughs> um, but I remember uh, Joe Crozier would give us two beers each player, two beers a game after a game when we go on the road. Uh, as you came on the the the, uh, the plane, he'd be at the front. He had his two beers, and I remember Don Cherry used to give Mike and Mike Walton and I one of his beers, one each. And uh, so he has a bit the reputation of being a big drinker and everything. He's not a big drinker at all. <laughs> he is uh, just the greatest guy, 
greatest teammate uh, you could ever have. And um, he looked after us guys. I'll tell you a story about him one night. Uh, we had a guy, uh, a real tough guy on our team named Red Armstrong, Norm Armstrong. Mm-hmm. And we played in, uh, I think, Baltimore uh, one night and in the, uh, so we flew from Baltimore to Springfield where the previous mentioned Eddie Shores team was we were playing Springfield the next day and it was New Year's Eve and we got into uh, the hotel I think it was called the Sheraton Hotel in Springfield and we got in there and across I was rooming with Jimmy Patton and across from our room there was a party a New Year's Eve party and we went in there, and Normie Armstrong saw what was going on in the party, and he went in and he stole the salad bowl out of the party and ran into our room right across from the party and slammed the door. And they, some guys were coming and chasing him from the party. And uh, so, anyway, Pappen and I are in there, and Red is in there with his salad bowl with salad in it, <laughs> and we didn't know what he did. And uh, he just came in the same time what we did, and and laughing. He was laughing, and uh, so they they were kicking in the doors. The people from this party trying to get at this. He said, "This redheaded so and so. We saw you take that bowl and came in here. Excuse me, I got to I got to move inside. The uh, lawnmower is coming by. <laughs> and, uh, so, uh, anyway, uh, we didn't know what was on the other side of the. Uh, the door guys banging on the door saying uh uh you know you so-and-so is get out here we're gonna kick the crap out of you and red armstrong could kick the crap out of anybody so anyway i called don cherry's room and i said grapes i says we might need some help out here we don't know what's on the other side of this door and uh because we couldn't get the door open from our side and they couldn't get it open from their side because it was kicked in so bad mm-hmm. so me so anyway Next thing we know, there's a knock on the door, and it's Don Cherry, and he says, Axe, he said, slide the key under the door. And I said, and I, and he, and, uh, I said, well, do you think it's safe? He said, what do you think I'm trying to open the door for? <laughs> <laughs> it was very safe. So, uh, we, so Don Cherry opened the door from the outside, and uh, in come these guys, and they said, they took a look at Red Armstrong and Jimmy Pappen and me and Don Cherry, and they said, oh, oh I'm sorry, you just keep the salad. <laughs> <laughs> a wise decision. Which so, yeah, Don Cherry was great. And uh, and then he went on to be, he was he used to, to uh, have Mike Walton and uh, Terry Clancy and myself and uh, Stemmer over at his house for... Uh, for dinner and with his wife Rose and his dog Blue. He's had about five or six of these dogs Blue because they, they pass away just by another one. They look exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was his big thing was to watch, watch at that time was he had a nice aquarium and he'd sit there and he'd sip on a beer and he'd watch the fish swim around. And um, he uh, basically got paid, you know, like the rest of us, about $6,000, and then he would work in a car dealership for, uh, during the summer, a very hard worker, and a good support of his family, great, and then, so he got to be known in Rochester, and then uh, when he finished playing hockey, they made him a coach, and uh, so then he was a coach for Rochester for several years, I think he won a couple of Calder Cups, 
And um, then uh, he got the job in Boston, and Bobby Orr came along right. just as he got the job. So uh, it was, uh, you know, match made in heaven, of course. And uh, then he went on, and uh, after they fired, like everybody gets fired, so he uh, ended up with a gig on TV, and uh, the rest is history. Absolutely. And that's, you, your, your story explains a lot of why he's so popular with the with the players, the ex-players you talk to now as a noted to you, last time we talked, I worked with the Bruins alumni, and you talked to those guys who played for him, O'Reilly, Middleton, et cetera, and there's a, still a very strong bond there, to be sure. Yeah, he, he uh, you know, he came at the right time uh, as, as far as uh, the Boston coaching establishment was, where they had Cheevers and uh, Bobby Orr and Johnny Busey, just a great team, you know, so... Uh, when you're winning, it uh, it helps uh, promote a lot of things. And uh, like myself, I, I I didn't get along with my coaches very well. And uh, because and, you know you're losing all the time, most of the teams I played for, and and uh, so. But Boston was a uh, a great situation for him. And uh, the alumni of Boston, I know all the guys are great guys. And uh, uh, I I actually. Uh, something that nobody knows um my first year pro that i talked about when i was uh moving around a lot uh boston only had three goaltenders in their whole organization one of them was eddie johnson one of them was jack norris and i don't know who the other uh goaltender was chivas wasn't there yet but punch emlack made a deal for me to go for to boston uh and and uh you know practice with Boston all the time starting in about March of my first year pro and so Boston Mitch Schmidt was a coach and they were in last place and they only had one goalie and so in case uh, uh, he got hurt then I would have to play and uh, but I had they needed somebody for practice so they let me to Boston for uh, a year wow. or for the rest of the year so it was March April and then whenever the season ends, ends, maybe it was sometime in February. But so I traveled with them. I practiced with the Bruins and um, on the team at that time. Uh, Eddie Johnson was the goalie, but he was right with a broken arm. He was out for the year. And Jack Norris was the guy that was playing. And um, I didn't realize till 50 years later, there was an article in the Toronto Star that about me going there. And the deal was for a dollar... They would lend me there, uh, and then I got an NHL salary, of course, which was like a $2,000 raise for me, mm-hmm. prorated till the end of the year. And um, But I didn't realize until 50 years later that if I were to play, if I had to play, then the Leafs were going to get Johnny Busick wow. for, for me playing. And uh, so there was no way that Boston was going to be playing me. And I was wondering, <laughs> Milt Schmidt was such a great guy. They were doing so brutal with this guy Jack Norris in the net. Why not give me a chance? And uh, I was wondering why he never put me in there. And he was a good friend of my dad's, and he was so nice to me and everything. And uh, But they they never put me in. They went with Jack Norris for the whole time. But I didn't realize until 50 years later that if I had played, that Johnny Busick was coming to Toronto. And uh, certainly for the Boston Bruins, it was a good thing I never played. Yes, yeah, certainly would have changed history for the Bruins and for yourself, to be sure. That's great Bruins trivia. I never knew that. Yes, and uh, also they would they would put my name in the lineup when I went on the road, 
uh, and I guess at home. And uh, but I read the program once, and you know what number they gave me? I was on, the, but I never wore. I never even saw the sweater. Mm-hmm. Number four. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess basically I was number four before Bobby Orr was number four. <laughs> well, that's two things I never knew before that our fans will, will uh, love, love to hear so too. So the next year, I was hoping, you know, I really tried hard in practice and I behaved myself and Milt Schmidt was my coach, great friend of my dad's. And next year I was hoping to get drafted by them. And guess who they drafted? I mean, that must have been Jerry Cheevers that year, right? Cheevers. Cheevers. So that was another good thing for Boston. They didn't draft me. But I was hoping to get drafted there, and they, they took Cheevers. So then I went to Rochester, and I was regular goalie. I played like, I don't know how many games, 60 goals, 60 games or something that year when Cheevers left. Yeah, it would have been a different turn in your career because you played with some teams. We're going to get to that in a second. But if you had Bobby Orr in front of you with Espo and Busick, Cashman, Hodge, etc., um, you probably would have. Helped, but I, was, uh, I, I wasn't as good as Cheers uh, was anyway, but uh, it sure would have. You know, was, there's funny twists and things. Oh, and yeah. uh, Whatever is meant to be is meant to be. And, uh, um uh, yeah, it should have been. It sure would have been great for me. But uh, Jerry Cheever is one of my greatest friends, and uh, I'm happy for him. So I'm happy with my career, and happy for Jerry and uh, the great career that he had. Your career takes a turn. You go from the championship Toronto Maple Leafs organization, NHL expands, which provides opportunities for players like yourself with NHL caliber. But obviously, you're not going to uh, leapfrog over five players in Toronto as as a young player in goal. The Oakland Seals draft you. You go out there. Charlie Hodge is there, is also drafted. So you're strong in goal. You're playing for a, even by those days standards, as I recall, Bert Olmsted, who was uh, eventually a Hall of Famer, former Montreal Canadian, kind of a, a, a hard-nosed coach. What was that first year like in Oakland, California? Well, first of all, I was happy to be uh, drafted by Oakland. Uh, a kid from Canada going to San Francisco area and. Um, uh, it was it was good. I was, uh, you know, we lost all the time. Um, I uh, basically, uh, I think that as you me- as you mentioned, our coach was Bert Olmstead, and uh, he was just too tough. He was a real old old school coach and player. Um, but as a coach, he just wasn't meant to be a coach. Uh, he was too strict. I can remember a practice. We hadn't even had a game yet in the NHL, and we were called an NHL team, the Oakland Seals, and we played an exhibition game in Tiburon, Michigan, against Buffalo uh, of, uh, of the uh, Buffalo Bisons, I guess it was called, of the uh, American Hockey League. And I played in the American Hockey League the year before, and they were a good team, but they just weren't an NHL team. And here we were an NHL expansion team. And Bruno said we were supposed to beat them, and we tied them 3-3. And uh, he came in the dressing room after, and he said, if I were you guys, I would go right home and go to bed because you're going to have a practice tomorrow like you've never had in your life. So I, so I think everybody probably went out and, they, you know, and didn't bother going to bed. I'm sure I, I know I went out. <laughs> and um, anyway, the next day we go to practice, and... Um, he blows a whistle and he says, go to the sideboard, stops and starts. Or, we had to go skate from one side to the other 
and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And there was a a uh, clock in the arena, and after about three minutes of this, you're just you've had it, mm-hmm. and uh, everybody's had it. So the guys are barfing. The um, the ice is worn out for the guys stopping and starting on it, both sides of the boards. And we look at the clock, and he blows the whistle, and it's been an hour. He says, you're halfway there. So we had to do that for another hour. Oh. And I think that at that time in training camp, the spark from the team was just taken right out of the team. And uh, so... On any other team, I went from, you know, we won the championship three years in Rochester. We won the Memorial Cup before that. Every team I'd ever played on had won everything in the season, and we went to being the worst team in hockey. And it was because the heart was just taken out of the team. There was a bunch of great guys and good hockey players, and we'd go out after the game, and it was all about the coach, how much we hated the coach. The guys would just go drinking. Or we play golf, and we we just we hated the coach. We didn't even think about even trying to win. We just wanted him to get out of there, basically. Right. Well, nonetheless, the next season in '68, '69, you do get a chance to become the consistent starting goaltender. You have four shutouts. I was curious if you recall a game on Christmas of 1968 in Boston. A three-to-one victory over the powerful Boston Bruins, uh, the team that you, the Seals would have struggled with historically. But uh, you had a big night that night with 37 saves, I believe. Do you recall that game on Christmas of '68? No, no, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do in Boston anyway. Um, so uh, eventually, you know, you're you're playing well with the Seals, as you noted. The team is has its ups and downs. The coach Freddie Glover. Eventually, Charlie Finley comes onto the scene and takes over control of the team as an owner. And I'm curious of your recollections of Charlie Finley. Yeah, Charlie Finley was great. We, uh, we, uh, we didn't uh, see him very often, but he would see us in places like Boston or Chicago or Detroit, uh, the old arenas, and uh, he knew nothing about hockey. I remember he had a guy named Harvey Wittenberg who uh, is – now I think still the uh, the voice of the Chicago Blackhawks uh, at the arena. Maybe he's not anymore, but he was for many years. But he was our uh, announcer. They they got the games on the radio uh, strictly so Charlie Finley could hear the games. And I guess he'd go to sleep at night listening to Harvey uh, and uh, broadcasting the Seals games. But he would bring his buddies uh, to the games and. Um, if we happened to win a game on the road somewhere, he would come into the dressing room after and uh, give us all 300 bucks and uh, say, go buy a pair of shoes or go buy a suit or something like that. And um, the only thing he was, like, we traveled first class with Charlie. We um, After I left, they had their own plane, I understand. But uh, uh, But the only thing he wouldn't do is he wouldn't pay his players. And so when my contract came up, uh, with the seals, um, he uh, wouldn't get. I played set. I played like seventy-two games uh, in the season, and uh, I think at that time I was making thirty thousand. Mm-hmm. And um, 
he won because we lost. I lost the most games uh, in the league, and uh, I won the most games in the league, and I tied the most games in the league. <laughs> but uh, because I lost, he wanted to give me a seven thousand dollar cut in pay. So he wanted to give me twenty three thousand instead of thirty, and I played seventy two games. Wow. And uh, this, excuse me, this lawnmower is coming back. <laughs> and um, so. Uh, I went to arbitration, and uh, that time the uh, judge for the arbitration was a guy named Ed Houston from Ottawa, and uh, so I went to arbitration in Ottawa, and I got my cousin, who is a guy that played in the CFL and university grab, grad. He was my, Jim Keynes his name, he was my guy that I went to arbitration for. And uh, so Judge Houston r rules that Finley is right, I should get 23000 the next year. Ooh. So I say, great. And uh, I got the call. The next day I got a call, and I'd just been traded to Chicago for four players. Uh, Jerry Desjardins, Jerry Pinder, uh, Paul Schmier, and a guy named Kerry Bond, who I don't know who he was. Mm -hmm. um, I got traded the next day after my contract was uh, settled by arbitration, and um, that's how I ended up in Chicago. But as far as Charlie Finley, he was great with everything, but he wouldn't pay his players. That's why in a couple of years after that, um, Jill Malosh, uh, and uh, that year, Jill Malosh ended up uh, going for Jerry Desjardins. Jerry Desjardins came back to the Blackhawks, mm -hmm. and Jill Malosh went to that team and made him an instant contender because he's a fantastic goalie. But uh, that's why all the guys, Charlie Finley, all the guys jumped from the Seals. There must have been seven or eight of them, Bobby Sheehan, and uh, Jill's was the only one that stuck there because he had to play Jill. That was all he had. He had to pay Jill. That was all he had. But uh, that's why the Oakland Seals struggled for the years after that is because they all jumped to the WHA because he wouldn't pay them. Yeah, they lost uh, 11 guys that year. You, uh, you, you mentioned uh, you know, Paul Schmier had left, uh, Jerry Pinder, and Norm Ferguson, Bobby Sheen, Wayne Carlton. He'd go on and on, but the team was starting to come together by, by that time, and everybody, as you said, Charlie was reluctant to pay them, and they all departed. But prior to that, I want to talk about, you just noted that 70-71 season where you play 72 games, and I read somewhere that at the end of the season, you were so mentally and physically exhausted, you actually had to be hospitalized. Uh, is that correct? Uh, I didn't have to be hospitalized, but I was uh, mentally exhausted. Totally. Um, my wife uh, and I drove back to Ottawa and uh, from San Francisco, and uh, I was in the back seat the whole way, blowing in a bag because uh, I was so screwed up. And um, so that summer, um, before Chicago made the deal, I didn't. Um, I, I, I was sent, Charlie Fentley sent me to uh, Chicago for a uh, medical uh, assessment. So I went to a doctor in Chicago, and uh, believe me, I had a terrible summer after. I was just physically uh, exhausted and mentally, mostly mentally screwed up because of the losing situation and having mm -hmm. to play all those games. and. 
And um, so anyway, I went to this doctor in Chicago, and he went through all these tests and stuff like that. And then so he said, well, and I told him what, you know, how brutal it was, how tough it was losing all the time and playing all the time in Oakland and that. And I can remember him saying to me, well, he couldn't tell me that that I was going to be traded, but that it was, you know, I was traded like uh, a month later after they found out there was nothing the matter with me. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was, I understood it was Finley sending me to Chicago, and it, I guess, was Chicago and Finley sending me there and giving me a physical to see if I was capable of playing. Because when I went to Chicago, I remember go, if we were going on the road. I would have to be at the airport like two hours before uh, we left because I wanted to make sure I was there and I was going to be on the plane because I was too screwed up because I didn't think that I could uh, I could even uh, make the plane. And uh, everybody was asking me, what's the matter with you? Like Stan Makita, I can remember him saying to me, what's the matter with you? And I said, I don't know, I'm just so nervous. Basically, I think I'm going to die today. And uh, he said, "Ah, oh, I have the same feeling." He said, "You know what?" He said, "He said, uh, you know what? I I lose, I lost my hair because I was so nervous about things." So he said, "Just have a couple of beers and you'll be all right." Mm-hmm. So basically, that was the best advice I ever got in my life. <laughs> yeah, least least expensive therapy, therapy you can get, I guess. But I was gonna, before we leave the uh, the seals, I want to ask you about two players who are no longer with us, who are very prominent part of that seals team. Uh, number one was Harry Howell, of course, uh, Norris Trophy winner, Hockey Hall of Famer. Uh, towards the end of his career, of course, at that point, what are your memories of Harry Howell? Maybe the greatest guy that ever lived, uh, nicest guy that ever lived, a great defenseman, um, just uh, such a gentleman. Harry and I uh, became great friends. I used to play golf with him every day. And uh, during the season, uh, when we were at home, with Carol Vadney and Harry, myself, and Normie Ferguson, and um, we, uh, Harry and I had a joke, and we would just say that we were opposition going into to uh, play these other teams, and that's all we were as the opposition. They were, we were like the Washington Generals uh, basketball team playing against the Globetrotters. <laughs> And we used to just look at each other and just say, uh, well, if there was a big crowd or something, well, it looks like they like the opposition today. <laughs> you know, we knew we were going to lose, basically, but we'd, we'd do our best not to lose. Mm-hmm. And uh, just a gentleman and a um, uh, great guy. And uh, used to see Harry. He, he was scouting for Minnesota North Stars for many years. And, right. And we'd, uh, whenever he was scouting and we were, you know, I was still playing on a team, then we'd go out to dinner and uh, miss him dearly. Yeah, he's a very nice guy. I had a chance to meet him. As you said, he was a scout. And so when I was working in Hartford, he'd come into town and uh, get a chance to meet him a couple of times. Very, very nice man. And another player that you just mentioned who was uh, the all-star player of the Seals, a defenseman, came over from the Montreal organization, Carol Vadney. Uh, what are your recollections of Carol as a player and as a person? Well, uh, he, he made us a... a, a you know, a half decent team when he came. I think it was the second year when we had a big uh, turnaround with the Freddie Glover year. And um, a great guy. He was uh, uh, just talented, uh, 
person could just move the puck. He could skate through the team himself. And uh, just a great guy and as a, as a person. Um, he was tough. I can remember him having, like, uh, I think three fights in one game with Keith Magnuson, who was another great guy and great team player. Um, and uh, he'd stand up for his teammates and... He was gone, and then he went to Boston, and he fit in pretty good there. I think he was in, in I think he was in the Stanley Cup team. I'm not yes. sure. He was, yeah, good. And um, uh, yeah, he, he made the team, a, a, you know, a bit of a threat. And uh, that's where we had Norman Harris in that great, great year that he had. Uh, when I was rooming with Normie, uh, he. Uh, he got, I don't know how many goals, uh, 35, 40 goals, and uh, he tied with uh, Danny Grant in scoring, and Danny was uh, voted Rookie of the Year, and of course, uh, nothing against Danny, but uh, the guys with Oakland figured that Fergie should have been the Rookie of the Year, but no, you know, the, the voters for the Rookie of the Year from the NHL press or uh, something, and uh, we were playing out in... Uh, in Oakland, and our games were on TV, and they never saw him. Danny Grant was playing in uh, Minnesota. I don't think they saw him either, but they picked Danny over Fergie, but uh, we figured Fergie should have deserved it to, to be a rookie, and he was another big uh, uh, factor in ourselves having a good year. We went from uh, last place, like worst in the league, and, uh, and I, we made the playoffs. I think we were close to first place the next year. We hope you enjoyed part one of our interview with Gary Smith. Part two will be coming up soon, and we'll talk about Gary's days with the Chicago Blackhawks, where he reveals how he really felt about goaltending tandem mate and future Hall of Famer Tony Esposito. And we've got just absolutely crazy stories about his days in Minnesota, Washington, and in the WHA with the Winnipeg Jets. Either way, great guy, great stories, and we hope you join us for part two of our interview with Gary Suitcase Smith. Remember, home base for the show is ProHockeyAlumni.org, and you can also reach us anywhere on social media at ProHockeyAlumni. Your comments, ratings, and reviews on iTunes are extremely valuable in increasing the visibility of the show. I read all your comments, and they are greatly appreciated. Now, let's talk classic hockey with Gary Smith. <laughs>